You know what's great about Mount Vundagor, Miles? I don't know, Jay. It's beautiful hiking trails and scenic overlooks. It's just an endless font of weirdness. I mean, we're talking about the original homeland of the freaking Darkhold. Wait, the Darkhold as in the Darkhold Redeemers? Cathan's book of black magic? One and the same. Really, Cathan is ground zero for most of Vundagor's weirds, even down to the mountain itself. In the 6th century, he was imprisoned within the mountain, and his evil gave the clay and wood from the mountain special powers. So, like, if you made images of people, you could use them to control those people from a distance. Hang on, is that where Puppet Master's special clay comes from? Imported directly from the slopes of Mount Vundagor. It's also where Django Maximoff... That's Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch's foster father, right? Or biological father, depending on the week. But anyway, it's where he got the wood for the puppets he used to... Control people from a distance. Imprison the souls of the Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver so that he and the puppets could be a happy family again. What?! I'm Jay Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 387 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to one of our final couple of pre-Operation Zero Tolerance episodes. Welcome to Excalibur. And Excalibur post-Crimson Dawn, which is very, very exciting to me. Uh, yes, yes, Crimson Dawn is gone, they can't hurt us anymore, they'll just be mentioned a couple of times, and I think that's about it. I think they mainly just leave Psylocke with a pretty sweet face tattoo, although that will go away eventually as well. So before we dive too far in, uh, listeners, you may notice that I sound, well, worse right now. I just moved like two days ago, and so I'm in a very temporary setup. Um, Matt will do what he can, but uh, one can only fight the inevitability of terrible audio geometry so well in this room. So um, it'll get better. Uh, Apologies in advance. Speaking of things that we hope get better, let's talk about what's been up in Excalibur. Yeah, so after battling the aforementioned, very boring to the two of us, Crimson Dawn, Captain Britain, that's Brian Braddock, one of the founding members of Excalibur, and the only definite non-mutant on the team, has lost his powers. I think we can say that the Crimson Dawn is just boring, objectively, across the board. I hesitate to ever say that I'm being objective, but yeah, I might have some more confidence on this front. It's okay if you like it. Some people like boring things. (laughs) Fair. Captain Britain is, after that boring story, objectively, now on sabbatical, leaving behind the rest of the team. Still with the team are Brian's fiancé Megan, former X-Men Nightcrawler, Shadowcat, and Colossus, former New Mutants Wolfsbane and Techno-Organic Continuity Tangle Douglock, and former spy Pete Wisdom. The team as a whole remains based out of Dr. Moira McTaggart's research compound on Muir Island off the coast of Scotland. Most of Moira's research lately has been on the mostly mutant-targeting AIDS allegory, the legacy virus. Mostly because she's the first apparent human to be infected by it and is slowly and now more rapidly dying. Yeah, yeah, we've read Powers of X too, but that retcon came later and is way too much to worry about right now. Which brings us to Excalibur number 111, Broken Vows. This issue is written by Ben Robb, penciled by Rob Stotts, inked by Scott Koblish, colored by Kevin Tinsley, lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft, and Kiff Scholl. 
so I wasn't familiar with the name Rob Stotts, and so I looked Rob up, and this artist has done very few comics that I could find. Like, this is basically it for Marvel, unless you count a single chapter from a one-shot that was a crossover between Marvel and Malibu comics. The art itself, I mean, it's fine. There's some neat zoomed-out panel framings here and there, but it's just sort of this, like, comics art. You know, it's what I would expect in a comic. Yeah, it doesn't blow my mind, but it also doesn't leave me wanting to get back the time I spent looking at it. That said, the first page is legit gorgeous. Now, as we mentioned, Excalibur just dealt with the Crimson Dawn, and so they're actually still in Hong Kong, where that fight took them. And on a Hong Kong roof, in the rain, Megan is brooding. She's reciting her wedding vows, and she almost throws her engagement ring off of a building before Colossus stops her. This is some good high drama. I mean, it's a little ridiculous. Like, dude, your fiancé is just taking a break because he has to come to terms with losing his powers. But, you know, Megan's an intense lady. I was gonna say, Megan, who are you, Brian? <laughs> you know, I'm, I mean, opposites attract to an extent, but I feel like you have to have a compatible potential for brooding for a relationship to really work. Do you think they brood together? Do you think it's like a sex thing? Oh, man. Yeah, like, you know, they negotiate beforehand. Like, all right, how deep are we brooding tonight, honey? What are you comfortable with right now? Well, I had a pretty heavy meal, so I don't want to go too hard on the brooding or I might get queasy. You know. We should probably establish a happy word before we get started. <laughs> the happy word is Alan Davis's Excalibur run. But they might just say that incidentally. I don't know, Alan Davis doesn't exist in the Marvel Universe. Or does he? I mean, Jack Kirby does. Neil Conan does. Well, plenty of Marvel creators do, either as named characters or not. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. I don't know. I mean, I realize we've probably thought more about Captain Britain and Megan's sex life than most people have, but are we getting to the point where we're thinking too much about Captain Britain and Megan's sex life? I mean, I think if we were actually thinking about it, yes. I think going off on a silly parody riff about it, less so. Oh, I suppose. But yeah, Colossus sees her about to throw this ring away into the Hong Kong night, and like I mentioned, stops her, and is actually really sweet about the whole thing. He reminds Megan that, for starts, she could just effortlessly create an elemental shield from the rain. Thus proving that he is missing the entire point of cinematic brooding. Which is weird, because Colossus is like an expert brooder, right? Yeah. Yeah, oh well. Uh, but he also reminds Megan that hey, her relationship with Brian is super solid, he's gonna come back, they're gonna get married, it's gonna be great. It's so rare to see close platonic male-female friendships in superhero comics. I'm not saying that they don't exist. I mean, Iceman and Rogue are great, for instance, but it seems like there aren't that many, and I love this one. And a lot of them involve Colossus. You know, that's a really good point, actually. He's just a good bro. I mean, uh, I guess he couldn't protect his family from dying, but to be fair, that was continuity's fault, not his. Yeah, I feel like a lot of the hardships that have been visited on the Rasputins were not things Piotr had any reasonable control over. Oh man, one of these days, Piotr's gonna just, like, track down Scott Lobdell and Chris Claremont and all the various X-Men writers, and I doubt he's gonna be violent against them, but he's gonna brood at them. Lots of brooding. That's our He's theme. gonna say he's gonna cry on them? He's just gonna cry on them, but his tears will be techno-organic steel and will crush them. Not sure that's how it works. I don't know if he can cry in metal form. I don't think he can. I... I think that's actually been a plot point, and I think you're right. Okay, good, good. Well, in that case, I'm relieved for the sake of, you know, various X-Writers, that they won't be crushed by his steel tears. Just dampened. Just dampened. 
Anyway, like we said, the team is in Hong Kong, and inside, where it's not raining and no one's brooding, at least not very hard, are the rest of the team. At least the rest of the team that were on that adventure. Nightcrawler, Shadowcat, Pete Wisdom, and Wolfsbane. And they are waiting for the return of an errant former associate, that being the one and only Rory Campbell. Okay, so Rory hasn't been around in a little while. Jay, do you want to tell the listeners what his deal is? So, when he was about four years old, we drove my cousin Will home from a baseball game. And he sang us this song that he assured us was a real song, that was definitely real, that he was definitely not making up at the time. He was definitely making it up at the time. Which was was about this baseball player who just lost each of his limbs in succession. And the chorus was the sort of dirge like, no left arm, no right arm, and so forth. And this is also roughly Rory Campbell's plotline. Right, because Rory Campbell is a scientist, a psychologist, in fact, that worked with Excalibur for a while. And he found out kind of early on that he was destined to become the mutant, hunting, piratical villain Ahab in the future. At least in one timeline. At least in one timeline. But Ahab hated mutants in part because they were responsible for him losing his various limbs. And so every time Rory loses a limb, he worries more and more that he's going down that dark path. At this point, he's lost one. Uh, spoiler, he'll, he'll lose more. Enjoy him while you got him, Rory. Right? For right now, what I'm enjoying is his fashion. He's wearing this sweet red and violet asymmetrically patterned bodysuit that shows off his comic book physique. You know why that is? Why's that? It's because he's been staying with the Hellfire Club. And look, the Hellfire Club has battled a lot of things, but they know how to dress to impress. They do. They also have dressed him apparently in a new prosthetic leg. It's pretty cool. It has the same bodysuit, but there's this sort of sleek machinery around the uh, the merge, the uh, the binding point, I guess. But like you said, Jay, they are in the headquarters of Shaw Industries, Sebastian Shaw's company, which apparently is based in Hong Kong. I didn't realize that. We've, of course, seen Sebastian Shaw for years and years. Are they in the global headquarters or just the Hong, the Hong Kong headquarters? Uh, it's not mentioned. I mean, I feel like Shaw Industries is big enough that it's probably headquartered all the hell over the place. Mm-hmm. But we haven't seen Sebastian Shaw himself in a long time, in part because he's been dead as far as anybody knew. Shaw, of course, was one of the original members of the inner circle of the Hellfire Club, a kind of S&M rich people power broker club. One of the original members within the appearance in X-Men comics. There have been generations of members predating him, officially. Although he was the f- a member of the first group to take over from the previous inner circle. I think it was like the inner circle and the Lord's Cardinal, and I can never remember which is which. They go back and forth. Yeah, yeah, inconsistent. Anyway, he was killed by his son Shinobi before Shinobi could ask his dad what sex was. Turned out he wasn't killed very thoroughly. Shinobi doesn't understand sex or patricide, because Shaw is back. Well, at least we know he'll never pull an Oedipus. Oh, yeah, yeah, good point. Um, that seems for the best. I feel okay about that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, Shaw's back. He's been mostly scheming around the corners of various comics. I think he's been an X-Man a fair bit. What's relevant right now in this arc is that he gave Rory a new leg. And when Pete Wisdom heads down to the basement of Shaw Industries' MIS department, uh, we learn a little bit more about that. Sidebar, MIS departments are another name for IT departments, and the department that I work in at my company is one of the few that still calls it MIS. So that was kind of gratifying to see. What does the S stand for? 
It's management of information services. It's not actually very exciting. I mean, IT is fewer letters and more straightforward. It's probably better. So Wisdom hacks into the mainframe of said department and finds that, yeah, what Campbell said is basically what happened. Since last time Excalibur saw him, he went to Japan for his prosthetic, quit the Weird Happenings organization that he was working at, and then came to Hong Kong to thank Shaw personally for the prosthetic. However, were you to read X-Men Volume 2, Number 63, which came out around this time and we'll be covering next episode, you would learn a little bit more. Not only did Campbell head to Hong Kong to thank Shaw, he came there to give Shaw a stolen disc full of legacy virus data. This is presented in different ways in X-Men 63 and Excalibur 111. In Excalibur 111, it's implied that he did it in exchange for the new leg. In X-Men 63, on the other hand, it's clarified that while the exchange was facilitated by Shaw giving him the new leg, he actually gave Shaw the disc because Shaw had way more resources than Moira and might actually be able to find a cure in time to save her, which Campbell was beginning to doubt that she would be able to do on her own. I kind of love it when this happens in comics, when you have different writers writing the same situation and there are different angles each time. It's almost like you have these kind of unreliable narrators in that you have multiple narrators who maybe aren't exactly on the same page. Interestingly, while Rory's wearing that sweet-ass bodysuit in both comics, in X-Men number 63, it's two different shades of blue instead of being red and violet. Um, so I don't know, maybe he has his like morally ambiguous versus reunion versions of that outfit. Or maybe, I mean, haven't you ever, like, bought a shirt and really loved it and gone back to buy, to buy more and found that it was out in the color that you got, so just gotten the same shirt in a different color? Oh, so you're saying that Rory's superhero bodysuits are kind of like my various collections of flannel shirts over the years? Yeah, basically, or my, my large numbers of interchangeable gray, black, and green Henleys. Yeah. Okay, no, I feel good about that. He's just got a closet full of different versions of that outfit in different color schemes. Exactly. Nice. Well done, Rory Campbell. Uh, as far as giving legacy virus data to Sebastian Shaw, um, I guess that remains to be seen. Yeah, that strikes me as kind of generally a bad idea. I mean, giving giving important data to Sebastian Shaw is not, not something you really want to do. That's how you get Sentinels. Right, because that's the thing. Like, Shaw in particular, and the Hellfire Club in general, all they care about is power. They don't really care about, you know, mutants or people not dying or anything like that. Yeah, the absolute best case scenario here is Shaw develops a cure and makes it financially inaccessible or uses it as leverage to get something else and much worse that he wants. Yeah, yeah, Shaw's a real shithead, and he's very good at being a shithead. He's a great villain. He is. He's a lot of fun. I'm really glad he's back. Yeah, me too. Although I miss Shinobi. Shinobi just sort of disappears around this, and we get to make so many fewer jokes about him not knowing what sex is. Maybe he's maybe he's basically doing, you know, the thing where Batman traveled the world to learn every possible fighting style? Oh, so he's like in some kind of a Shaolin monastery learning about Cunnilingus? He's going to, no, well, he's going to monasteries and trying to get monks to explain Cunnilingus to him. And they're like, uh, that's not really what we do here, but if you want to, like, smack your head into sandbags a whole bunch to learn invincible head technique, we can help you out. No, not that kind of head. And he's like, ah, Cunnilingus! <laughs> All right, that's it. From now on, I'm referring to Conalingus as invincible head technique. Anyway, while Pete Wisdom is learning all about Rory Campbell's adventures, he also checks his vidmail, complete with a You've Got Vidmail audio cue, and finds out that he has a message from Jardine, his old friend from British Intelligence. This was the guy whose daughter went missing in the Pride and Wisdom miniseries, and he showed up once before that. Um, unfortunately, after Jardine suggests in this video voicemail, 
that Wisdom go to a specific bar in Germany to get some info from a contact on something mysterious, Jardine is bloodily murdered in the video mail. And then the video mail ends. Wait, how does that work? Didn't somebody have to click send? Polite murderer. Oh, okay, he's like, well, if these are going to be his last words, they might as well get to the person they were going to. I don't know, that just kind of reminds me of the castle argh, thing from Holy Grail. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in this case, Jardine's death was partly to send a message to Wisdom. Uh, you know, and we will find out that Wisdom is indeed being lured somewhere, so okay. Okay, it makes sense, and it's not a dumb, silly thing we can make fun of, damn it. We can still make fun of it. Yeah, yeah, it's our damn podcast. So this this is also relevant to the email that that Pete briefly opened up, looked at, and then closed in the last Excalibur issue that we never really learned anything about. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of slow burn plot building in this era of Excalibur, and we'll talk a little bit more of that when we cover the next issue. There's a lot of slow burn plot building that specifically relies on you remembering really incidental, almost off-panel details from previous issues of a monthly comic, which really bugs me. Yeah, that's hard. I mean, if you're reading comics a month at a time, like, it depends on the comic, I guess. I remember when I was following Hellboy, I would always have to reread the previous month's issue because everything was just so, so dense. Uh, I don't know how it would have been around this era. I mean, this was after I stopped regularly buying X-Men. And that's okay. Turns out. Well, Rory Campbell takes Excalibur out for a night of partying because Campbell's a company man now. He's working for Shaw Industries. And it's kind of fun. Nightcrawler is using his image inducer to look like Errol Flynn once again, which of course Colossus remembers from back in the day. Rob clearly loves 70s and 80s X-Men. There are so many goddamn references around here. So... Dinner is awkward, and dinner is awkward because uh, Rory Campbell asks, where's that nice Amanda Sefton lady? Um, Amanda Sefton left several issues ago, abruptly, and told Colossus to tell Nightcrawler, who's her, her foster brother and boyfriend, and Colossus apparently forgot to do so, but also apparently Nightcrawler didn't notice she was gone. Okay. Colossus, bad on you. Nightcrawler, worse on you. Like, I realize relationships come in all shapes, Kurt, but I am not convinced that you and Amanda were very serious if you just don't notice that the other one is gone for I don't even know how long. I mean, I imagine sudden exits have to be a common feature of dating a long-distance teleporter. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, and Amanda used to be a flight attendant back in the day, so I guess she'd be gone for long periods of time. Yeah, so he's probably used to those rhythms. Or no, no, you know what? We're making excuses. What the fuck, Kurt? Yeah, what the fuck, Kurt? I mean, at least Amanda Sefton has the excuse of being possessed by her mother. Oh, yeah, speaking of which, Amanda Sefton is also possessed by her mother at this point. Yeah, but that's not relevant to this issue. What's relevant is that they are saved by the bell. And by bell, I don't mean something that would later transition into the college years. I mean the ghost of Ogun, who shows up and possesses Kitty out of nowhere. Whoa, 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 uh, whoa, whoa, wait a second. Ogun? Yeah, Ogun, you know, Wolverine's old mentor. From, and the guy from that, the Kitty Pride and Wolverine miniseries. From back in the 80s, once again, Rob remembers the hits. Ogun died at the end of that miniseries, but to be fair, in Wolverine comics over the last few years, he came back. It turns out if you don't fully destroy his demon mask, then he's basically okay. It was a whole thing. But he just sort of shows up out of nowhere here, possesses Kitty Pride, I guess because she's in Hong Kong and it's easier to possess people who are nearby, and then makes her throw dinner knives at her friends and refer to them as foolish mortals. And then after a brief argument, he unpossesses her and leaves, and it that's the end of that story. 
possesses Shadow Cat, throws dinner knives and calls people mortals, refuses to explain himself, leaves. Yeah. Yeah, that is that is basically it. But before that happens, he phases through the ground, and uh, Kurt, Nightcrawler, teleports down to the basement to find her, slash Ogun, and we get this panel that is... I think the phrase lovingly rendered is appropriate, Jay. I, I think that's that's an accurate description. So Nightcrawler, as we've mentioned, got a new costume a while back. It's sort of like a belt and a loincloth and this kind of cloaky thing that hangs over his shoulders and chest and back. But with him hanging upside down from the ceiling, the cloaky thing is just sort of hanging to one side of his head. And so it's just him and these this tiny little loincloth, a techno belt, and the most detailed musculature I have seen in a superhero comic in a long time. Like, yeah, everyone's muscular in superhero comics, but you can just tell that Rob Stotts spent a long time making Nightcrawler as sexy as possible. He's still not as sexy as Turtleneck Alan Davis Nightcrawler, though, somehow. No, no, he isn't. But, uh, yeah, you're right. Wisdom threatens to kill Kitty's body so that she doesn't stay possessed. Ogun blinks and leaves. Ogun's thing these days is very much possession. Since he was killed at the end of Kitty Pride and Wolverine, he's kind of a ghost. At one point when he's fighting Wolverine in the Wolverine series, he possesses a mime who tries to kill Logan. It's a whole thing. Well, that's a choice. It's totally a choice. It's actually hilarious. It even makes it onto the cover. And, uh, yeah, everybody's okay. So, at this point, the party splits up. Nightcrawler and Pete Wisdom decide they're gonna head to, journey- to Germany. They're gonna find Margali Sardos and try to find out if she knows where her daughter, Amanda, went. Not knowing that she is her daughter, Amanda, at this point. And Pete privately intends to follow up on Jardine's lead under the guise of going clubbing. Wolfsbane is heading back to Muir Island to check on Moira, who's, you know, her foster mother. Colossus and Megan are heading to Paris for a vacation and to check out a, an amusement park that Megan has always really wanted to go to. Unfortunately, Colossus and Megan's pilot, somewhere over some mountains, blows himself up, um, apparently to kill the two of them, and their plane crashes. And that cliffhanger leads us into Excalibur number 112, Survival, and also Excalibur number 113, Faith. Both of those issues are written by Ben Robb, penciled by Pete Woods, inked by Scott Koblish, colored by T- Kevin Tinsley, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Kiff Scholl. Oh man, once again, it's another artist we know. Yeah, this is this is getting into the, the awkward era where I, I have to start talking about my friend's comics. Yeah, I, I met Pete Woods at a party once. We, we didn't talk a ton, but he seemed like a really nice guy, and his yes. art's great. Yes, and it's really interesting, um, as with the X-Factor stuff that we saw Derek Robertson do a while back, it's always really, really fascinating to see an artist whose style has evolved significantly doing earlier stuff or doing something that approximates Marvel House style, which is what Woods is doing here. Yeah, that said, there's almost a little bit of uh, vertigo to it, a little bit of, uh, speaking of Derek Robertson, Derek Robertson. Everything's very clean and crisp, although some of that may also be Scott Koblish's distinctive inking style that we've been seeing on Excalibur for a while. Woods also has a cartoonishness to his style, which I think fits Excalibur very, very well. It goes a little bit further than Davis's, but it's got that same sort of almost almost gently rubbery feel to it, sort of the, the larger-than-life sense of being in this this very... This, this universe of, of, of clear lines and, to some extent, slapstick and extreme emotion. Yeah, one of the things I really enjoy in particular is how everyone's hair is, like, made of these spiky chunks of hair. It looks kind of anime. It's pretty great. So, the 
these two issues have have three simultaneous plot threads going, and we're going to look at the plot threads one at a time rather than the issues in order. Um, And we're also going to leave a lot of plot threads hanging at the end of this episode because Rob is kind of pulling a 70s X-Men thing where he's got, instead of discrete arcs, a lot of interwoven stories that are kind of happening at the same time. Yeah, and I kind of like that. I mean, as nice as it is just to have a handful of issues that we can very clearly turn into a podcast episode, it's, I think, a little more engaging in some ways when it's just an ongoing series where stuff keeps happening and storylines start, storylines stop. They don't necessarily all do so at the same time. Agreed, yeah. So when last we left Colossus and Megan, they were on a plane that was in the process of exploding. Right, and that plane catches fire and plummets down. Colossus tries to steer it up, and Megan tries to use her elemental powers to cushion the landing, but something's wrong. Colossus isn't able to gain control of the plane, and Megan's powers just aren't working. Something's blocking them, so they crash anyway. And come to in a sub-zero blizzard. Megan's not doing so hot, which is weird because she's an elemental. Like, this is her jam. But she is currently under attack by some kind of mystical force, and apparently delirious, talking about knights and a tower. Now, we never find out what the mystical force is that's attacking her, but we do find out what's going on with the tower, because Colossus carries her towards a distant light source, and finally collapses in front of a fancy techno-fortress, which, spoiler, will turn out to be the Citadel of Science. Okay, so it's only fair that Colossus drags Megan through the snow to a mysterious techno-castle? I mean... Magneto did the same thing for him after Avalon fell back in X-Men number 44. It's actually a surprisingly similar series of events. I'm not sure if that was intentional. So the Citadel of Science is specifically at Mount Vundagor, and if you know what that is, then you know exactly where we're headed with this, otherwise ride along. Colossus and Megan come to, roused by a mysterious cloaked figure who warns them of war on the horizon, and then she reveals herself as Bova. Bova is a nice lady who is also kind of a cow, and among other things, she was responsible for largely raising the Maximoff twins back in the day. Bova, I love Bova. She's such a nice cow lady, and she always wears these frumpy cloaks, and I don't know, I think she should get herself a nice dress or something if that's the sort of thing she's into, but cow lady in a cloak makes me happy every time. Maybe she likes the cloaks. They look comfortable. They do look pretty comfortable. You know, they're kind of roomy, they're not too constricting. And, you know, she's she's dealing with pretty adverse weather, so so you want to be wearing something that traps a lot of air for that kind of insulation. Okay, I wonder if it has, like, that sort of shiny, reflective silver surface on the inside to make sure her body heat isn't lost too much. I wonder if it's, like, a Columbia hiking cloak. That would be good. She might—this might also be sort of her adolescent rebellion, because we'll talk about her her putative parent shortly, but her style of dress is definitely very, very, very different from his. And we meet some of her uh, siblings, I guess? Mount Vundagor is full of animal people. Not the animal people created by the animator in New Mutants. Not the animal people created by Count Nefaria all over the place. Different animal people. Sorry, nor the animal people created by Magneto. Uh, oh, right. Well, those are like mutates. Uh, only some of them are animal people. Some of them are too many arms people. Still. Yeah, still. I really like the next animal person we meet, though. Right, this is Sir Ram. Um, There's a brief dust-up with Sir Ram, who is convinced, because he's seen video of Colossus with the Acolytes, that they are rivals. In fact, as it turns out, the Vundagor folks are gearing up for a fight with Exodus, Colossus's old boss from back in the Acolyte days. 
Yeah, yeah. Sir Ram is just like itching for a fight, and he's he's basically your stereotypical like honorable kind of luddite esque old timey battle based knight. Like he and Colossus punch each other, then Colossus explains that he's not with Exodus, and then they just clasp hands immediately. But he's kind of like a sexist jerk. He he calls Megan a little minx until she rockets him into the sky. Oh yeah, her powers are working again at this point. It's really unclear what the fuck was going on there. You know, mystical shit. Mystical shit. But let's talk about more of the Knights of Undergar. Right, right. We've got two more left. There's Ursula, who is a bear lady, and there's Lord Gator, who is pretty much what you'd expect from the name. Ah, but there are also a couple more in the background. Uh, I think one of them is basically Frog Thor, who I love. But one of them looks a lot like Ace Duck from the Ninja Turtles, who was, I believe, the first Ninja Turtle toy that had not yet appeared in the cartoon or the comic. Although it was very exciting, because later in an episode of the cartoon, he briefly showed up on a TV show the Turtles were watching, which raised a whole lot of questions. He had he had um, egg grenades, which, like, what the fuck, dude? Wow, that's that's dark. The Ninja Turtle toys didn't really think things through. Did he lay the eggs, or did he, like, steal them? I don't know, but they were pretty small, so maybe they were eggs from different kinds of birds? Like, birds he hated? Or maybe they were just grenades that looked like eggs. Sort of like Baby Boomerangatan had explosive baby dolls. Maybe it was like that. I don't know, we don't learn a lot about Ace Duck, because like I said, he started out as a toy and never really got much more development. Maybe he did in the IDW comics later? I don't know. See, that's what I like about Baby Boomerangatan, like, the entire concept's right there in the name. Him and Sarcastro. Listeners, if you haven't seen the Tick cartoon, then what are you doing? It's better than this podcast. Pause this episode and go watch some episodes. It's a good time. Yeah. So, also in the Citadel of Science is the creator of the Knights of Wintergore, and that is a guy we have met before in the pages of X-Men. The one, the only, the High Evolutionary. He wears pink, he wears white, he's kind of a robot dude, he's got ancient technology, and he is blazing it. He is also inexplicably babysitting Luna Maximoff at this point. This is um, Pietro Maximoff and Crystal of the Inhumans' daughter. Yeah, Quicksilver's daughter. And he's about to to embark on some kind of conflict with Exodus. We never find out the details, though, because after Colossus and Megan offer to help, he basically says, nope, and teleports them to Paris. And that's the end of their part of this story. Yeah, I love it. Like, they have this plane crash, they work their way through the snow, it's very dramatic, they meet some animal people, and then the High Evolutionary says, eh, see you guys later, and they don't get to help at all. But this makes sense, because what this essentially is, this plotline right here, is it's a backdoor pilot for the Quicksilver ongoing comic series, where Quicksilver works with the Knights of Undegore and comes into conflict with Exodus. What's weird is that that's not mentioned here, so unless you are specifically a reader of Excalibur, which is a comic that doesn't have a ton to do with Quicksilver, you wouldn't have known about this lead-in. Yeah, it's it's a baffling choice all around. It totally is. Also hilariously anticlimactic. This is also a lead-in to another comic that is not Excalibur. There's a Colossus one-shot that comes out right after this, which basically picks up immediately from Colossus and Megan being teleported to Paris, and involves them going to Dudley World, the theme park that she wanted to go to. We'll we'll cover that later. I, I will say, though, it involves the return of one of my favorite, not quite his own character, but concepts ever, the proletarian. Oh, oh, the proletarian. Let's all be excited for that day when we cover that comic. Or at least that panel. Back on your island while all of this is going down, Douglock is practicing wearing his image inducer and worrying that he's developing a crush on Rain. 
I kind of like the stuff on Muir Island in this arc. I like that we get to see more of Douglock learning what it is to be human. I like that we get to see Wolfsbane coming more into her own now that she can sort of change forms at will and she's out of the shadow of her dad. I also like artistically that multiple artists in this run in a row have now shown Wolfsbane flipping around all the time in her wolf form. Uh, and drawing, like, little shadows of where she's been each time. It's this weird little artistic quirk that just keeps happening, and, I don't know, it just makes her look very parkour-y. I dig it. It's very fun. It is. On his way out with, with Rain and Moira, Douglock stops back in for something he's forgotten and briefly reads Rain's diary, which is really uncool of him. Um, and, and what he specifically reads is a letter to God about how God has to keep Moira alive. And... It's it's very depressing and also very difficult to read because of the way it's written relative to the rest of the page. Ah, but Jay, the monkey's paw's finger has curled because I specifically recall you saying that you hated when letters were shown in captions as opposed to the pages that they were written or typed on. Yeah, but I've said even before that that I hate when legibility issues pull you out of the pacing of the story. Oh, okay, fair enough, fair enough. So let's talk a little about Moira, because we know she has the legacy virus. We know that this part of Excalibur is making a lot of the fact that her adoptive daughter, Wolfsbane, is worried about her. We never really see Moira as being all that sick, though. Like, we see her worrying a lot about dying. We There's a lot of talk about how she is dying, but she just kind of seems fine when she's not working. And I don't know if I like that or if I don't like that for the legacy virus. She does have inexplicably super long hair in these issues. Pete Woods likes drawing characters with long hair, it's true. Um, but yeah, I, I think having having Moira's decline be more visible would be effective, because right now it's both it's mostly just her talking a lot about it, or thinking a lot about it rather, and other characters abstractly worrying a lot about it. And there's definitely a disconnect. And I mean, I can sort of see it from the fact that she's trying to hide the severity of her illness, but I'd like to see more hints of that coming through. You know, I wonder if part of that is the fact that during Ben Robb's run, Excalibur could not hold down an artist for more than a few issues in a row. So since all the characters are essentially redesigned every two or three issues, we don't really get to see their appearances be consistent enough for change to be noticeable. That's an excellent point. That's the thing. It's easy to, you know, talk about writers as the driving force behind comics because they're the ones writing the stories. But so much of comic storytelling is the art. And so much of a comic feeling consistent, feeling like it has a consistent voice, is not trading artists constantly. Some books are better at that than others. Some eras are better, are better at that than others. I mean, around this time, we were certainly seeing a lot of problems with that in basically any book that Joe Matarera wasn't drawing. Although I guess we have had the same penciler at X-Factor for a while. I don't know. I, I think it's mainly Excalibur. It's not just Excalibur, and it's there, there's a lot that makes this era feel disconnected, but the, the rapid changes between artists, and the changes between artists with radically different styles, is jarring, and, and it's jarring in ways that, for me at least, interrupt the, the momentum of stories. And I mean, I get it, like, art takes a long time, and sometimes artists are late, and it happens, but, I don't know, I, I kind of like the way they were doing things in the 2010s or thereabouts, where a book would have the same writer consistently, but if it was coming out frequently especially, they would have a couple different artists with compatible styles alternate arcs. Yeah, and neither was trying to exactly echo the others, but they were close enough that, that you didn't get that whiplash, like um, Pacello and Anka. Exactly, yeah. So, back to Excalibur. Rain heads off 
to the U.S. for the Truth or Death miniseries, leaving Mora worried that she'll be dead when Rain gets back. But before Rain goes, Rain and Douglock uh, share a brief kiss goodbye, and then it gets super awkward. Okay, I, I I love this part, Jay. I love that what starts is a quick peck goodbye, then turns into a real kiss kind of accidentally, and then it just like goes on for long enough to kind of freak out both Rain and Douglock. Like there's this mmm speech bubble that's a heart between the two of them, and then in the second panel, there's mmm with a question mark at the end, and their eyes kind of go wide as they freak out realizing what's going on. It's it's cute. And then, like, Douglock kicks a rock sheepishly after as he walks away. I don't know. Like, I know you were saying you don't like the way Rob writes Douglock, and fair enough, but I really like this dynamic. It's just cute. I mean, I like the way that Woods draws Douglock. You know, that that's a lot of it. The art is just so charming. I also want to point out that the narration for this scene is absolutely batshit. Oh, yeah, yeah, it refers to Wolfsbane as Douglock's were-girlfriend? So, so she, she's a human who turns into a girlfriend at the full moon? I mean, g- girlfriends are, are human, right? I don't know, man. I, I feel like having, having absorbed enough popular culture in a patriarchal society, I, I can definitely see where you would see human and girlfriend as, as fundamentally different entities. Well, there is that. There is that. Really, though, my only complaint is that the sound effect is not smack. That should be the sound effect of every kiss. Always. Yes, regardless of the type of kiss, it just makes a smack sound. Oh, everything we know about kissing in comics we learned from the Punisher. (laughs) Yup. Anyway, let's go to Germany. Right, right, plotline number three. So in a club in Germany, Kurt sulks while Pete Wisdom corners a man who goes by Goethe and interrogates Goethe about Jardine. Yeah, this is the Ratskeller Club. I don't know if it's a real place, but I do know that it's described as being sin-filled and disreputable. It kind of reminds me of the evil disco from the Dark Phoenix Saga, but, like, not quite as evil. That's that's because evil has gone down- downhill since it peaked in the disco era. I mean, the music is still very much focused upon. Like, Ben Robb specifically adds in and credits some lyrics from the Chemical Brothers. Like, first we had the Prodigy lyrics in his first issue, now we have this. I feel like Ben Robb spent a lot of time with glow sticks in this era. Did he, or is he trying to appeal to the youth of the day? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I kind of remember 1997, but I wasn't into cool stuff. So what Wisdom learns is that Jardine was getting too close to something big, but Goethe doesn't know what, and, um, he expresses this in an accent that may actually be worse than Gambit's. May I, Jay? Please. Ah, nine! Why would I want such a thing? It's great. Like, all of his W's are V's, and he just keeps, like, sprinkling in random little bits of German words. I... I don't know. I have so much affection for awful, awful phonetic accents in comics, and I think all of that is just because of my affection for Chris Claremont. Like, I I know it's terrible, I still love it. I like to think that all of these characters are faking their accents badly. One of my favorite things in comics ever was learning that Phantom X absolutely fakes a French accent. Yes, yes, that was such a good detail. And see, I would buy Gambit's accent if it were someone badly faking a Cajun accent. Right? Or, no, or in this case, gambit. Goethe talks like someone who learned how a German accent works from watching bad American movies. <laughs> I mean, he is trying to impress a couple of women in the nightclub, so maybe everything about him is a put-on. Honestly, that whole bit with the women gives me intense Je suis Rick Springfield vibes. <laughs> Look it up, listeners. It's worth your time. I, I kind of want to explain it quickly, because it's a great song. It's my second favorite Jonathan Colton song. Um, 
Je suis Rick Springfield is is sort of a dramatic monologue. It is from the perspective of a man in a bar who, in very, very bad French, is trying to convince two fluent Francophone women that he is Rick Springfield. Whether or not he is actually Rick Springfield is never established. It's fucking great. Although, second favorite, what's your favorite Jonathan Colton song, Jay? Uh, my favorite is Dance Satirious Johnson Dance. That's that's a really good one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's a really good song. Yeah. What's also, I don't know about good, but entertaining is how Pete Wisdom, like, interrogates this guy. He extrudes two hot knives from his hands, which are like these, you know, little blades of light that he can throw, I guess. It's unclear. Blades of heat, I suppose. One to each side of this guy's face, and it is exactly like Wolverine's one claw, two claw, do you want the third claw thing that he always uses when he interrogates. I mean, Nightcrawler even mentions that Wolverine would be proud. I mean, can we can we reasonably say that Pete Wisdom had hot claws before Wolverine? We can. I love how Wolverine's hot claw powers were just entirely dropped immediately after they showed up. Like, no writer really wanted to deal with them at all. That's fair. I wouldn't want to either. They were a silly power. Anyway, Pete goes off to attempt to continue his mission alone, but Nightcrawler doesn't want to deal with any of that lone wolf bullshit and just shows up as Wisdom is about to leave. That's right. Wolves are highly social pack animals, motherfucker. And then gunmen attack, and Pete comes to chained to a gurney being held at gunpoint by a character who will later be identified as Sari St. Hubbins and her Dalek t-shirt. Okay, this really is the page. This reveal of Sari is the page where Woods' art really reminded me of Derek Robertson's, because she really just looks like a transmetropolitan character. Like, that kind of punk female character is so, so transmet. It's not just the character, it's the angle she's drawn at. Yeah, yeah, you're totally right. I mean, I, I don't really know if that was any kind of a direct influence, but it's just weird. I mean, she looks cool, so I'm fine with it, but it's weird. Yeah, that was how you drew punk ladies in 97. I guess it was. I didn't really draw any punk ladies back in 1997. Just drew Archangel a lot. And she has slapped a power inhibitor onto Pete, preventing him from accessing his uh, hot claws, and reveals herself as an agent of his former employer, Black Air. And... That's our cliffhanger. We end with Colossus and Megan in Paris about to go to an amusement park, Nightcrawler missing and Pete Wisdom about to be presumably tortured or something by this random lady, Wolfsbane heading off to a miniseries, Moira dying of the legacy virus. This is an era where plotlines just sort of keep going from issue to issue to issue, and it's kind of fun. I mean, my only real objection is that based on the structure of our podcast, listeners may have kind of forgotten what the deal was by the next time we get to Excalibur, which I think is going to be after Operation Zero Tolerance. Issue to issue I enjoy. I wish they did not go from series to series to series. Oh, uh, yeah, that's true. This leading into Quicksilver not mentioning it and leading into the Colossus one-shot is a little strange. Also, I object to the Colossus one-shot being the Colossus one-shot because Megan's in it just as much as he is, damn it. Alas. Meanwhile, you've got questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, In a recent episode, you mentioned a character outside of the X-Teams whose life was affected by the whole Onslaught thing. What event or storyline would you like to see from the perspective of a bystander not directly involved in it? So, long, 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 a million years when I was still, when I was just barely out of college ago, I actually pitched Marvel a story that was about the fallout from the Morrison arc where Xavier outs the school. Um... And it was specifically the impact that that had on, like, a local community gifted charter school. Oh, right. I remember that. I remember you telling me about that. God, that was so long ago. It was not a good story, but I stand by the concept. It's a very good concept, yeah. So what about you? 
Okay, listeners, hear me out, because my answer is Inhumans versus X-Men. Huh. So, here's the thing. This was the era, of course, where Marvel, whether they would admit it or not, was trying to downplay mutants and play up Inhumans because they had the film rights to Inhumans, but not to the X-Men. So, you know, the Inhumans were getting more and more comics, the X-Men had fewer titles, and were all dying from the cloud of Terrigen mist that was floating around the world, turning people into Inhumans and killing mutants. But here's the thing, think about this from the perspective of just a random person who's not a mutant, who's not an Inhuman. Like, we know that mutants have been very much in the spotlight for ages in the Marvel Universe. Sometimes they're hated and feared, sometimes they're heroes, but like, everybody has an opinion all the time about mutants. Inhumans, most people don't even know that they exist. Then House of M happens and mutants are mostly gone. It's one of the biggest news items, like, ever in the Marvel Universe. It changes the entire fabric of the universe. Mutants do start coming back after Avengers vs. X-Men, but I doubt most people notice, you know, a few babies being born who have the X-Gene. But then suddenly, a ton of mutants are dying, thanks to this giant green cloud, okay, pair of clouds, that start transforming random people into presumably basically mutants from what random bystanders can tell. I mean, some of them look different, some of them don't, they have new powers. I'd think most people would just say, hey, these are mutants. And then previously existing mutants start dying, and so everyone starts wondering, will these new, quote, mutants also start dying? Like, this would have been all that anybody in the Marvel Universe was thinking about for ages? They'd have opinions all the hell over the place. I would love to see even just like a miniseries that follows just a handful of random people, random humans, with very different takes and experiences with mutants or inhumans, and just sort of... And let us watch them as their views evolved or didn't or whatever. That would be fun. And also maybe it would help Inhumans vs. X-Men be better. Although Death of X was weirdly good. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Have you guys discussed in the past the brief but extremely weird crush-slash-love that Professor X expressed for Marvel Girl in the early issues of the Silver Age? Was this ever addressed or brought up again? Uh, yeah, uh, we, we actually covered it. Um, so the first time it comes up is X-Men, kind of uncanny X-Men, number three. That was the first time it was mentioned. We covered that in our very first episode. The second time it comes up was decades later in X-Men volume two, number 53, the lead up to Onslaught. We covered that in episode 342. Interestingly, at first, Xavier's reason for not, you know, following up on his love for Jean was that she could never love somebody in a wheelchair, as opposed to, you know, all of the other problems, which were the ones implied in that Onslaught issue. I believe, thankfully, those are the only times it's mentioned. Yeah, yeah, we, we looked it up, we couldn't remember anymore, we couldn't find anymore, and Marvel writers, for that, we thank you. Just, just bury that bit of story. Nobody needs it. Nobody wants it. So we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the air from a range of fictional characters and concepts. However, some of you Patreon subscribers have not been checking your email, so we're not sure who to thank next. Uh, yeah, we have a couple people left, but not, you know, the sets of listeners that we normally like to, to, to thank in, in pairs or whatever. Um, so, listeners, patrons, if you have been supporting us for either six months at the Clone of Jean Grey level, or three months at the Probably a Summer's Brother or Iceman with a Wizard Beard level, um, then please check your, check your email for an old message from us and, um, and reply to it. Or just email us at explainthexman at gmail.com with, with Patreon thanks in the subject line, and we will be silly characters and, and, and thank you on air, and we would love that. And also, thank you for supporting us, even if you could check your email a little bit more. And with that... 
Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode alongside original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported, even listeners who don't check their email. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, the X-Men team up with Shang-Chi. And Cecilia Reyes makes her debut.